so that news alert came across the news screens late on Friday evening for a certain area. And as the anchor showed up on the screens of, of TVs all across that region, she had a bit of concern in her voice. And she said, a, a long-term convict has escaped the state penitentiary and is now wandering about the community somewhere. Be on alert. Police want you to know that if you see anything, if you see this individual, you should not approach. This individual is considered to be very dangerous. And so if you see anything, let the police know. Well, early the next morning, the news alert came up again, and this time, the anchor who was working at the time, well, he seemed to be not quite as concerned. As a matter of fact, he said, folks, we just want to let you know that the escaped convict who had escaped yesterday evening has now turned himself in to the local police department. And so, as you imagine, detectives were kind of interested to know what's going on in the life of this convict, that he would escape, that he would enjoy freedom, and yet then, for whatever reason, commit himself back into the care of the system. And so they sat down with him and they asked him, well, what on earth are you thinking? What, what's going on? Why did you turn yourself back in? And this convict said, well, you see, I was able to escape and I enjoyed that breath of fresh air and freedom for the first time in 12 years. But when I walked through the door at my house at home, by the time I got there, my wife said these words to me. Where on earth have you been? You escaped six hours ago. <laughs> it's a strange thing for an individual to give up his or her freedom, is it not? I mean, when we see something like that, when we hear of someone giving up of themselves their own personal freedom, it causes us, like those detectives, to want to know why. Why would someone give away their personal freedoms? Well, today's the, the first day of July. That means we're now officially halfway through. Have you guys thought about this? Kind of depressing when you think about this sometimes. Halfway through the year that is known as 2018. And, and that also means that this coming Wednesday, we will now be celebrating Independence Day. It's been the theme of our songs here this morning as we've sung about freedom and we've tried to exercise our freedom and some of you still got those shackles and chains to the chairs. I know because you got Baptist heritage like me, right? Okay, I understand, but, but we're trying to celebrate the freedom that we have in Christ. That's been the theme of what we're worshiping the Lord with together here today in our song. And when we talk about Independence Day, we're talking about one of the most cherished days for Americans because it is a day where we celebrate our freedoms, those freedoms of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, and so many other freedoms that we share here together. And we're so blessed to live in a nation where we enjoy these freedoms, and the freedom has certainly come at a great cost. But those of us who are in Christ celebrate even greater freedoms than these we looked deep into christian freedom back when we walked through the book of galatians several months ago just looking at how paul described for us how we as christians are free from so many things because of the gospel of jesus christ he sets us free from the old testament law he sets us free from the curse he sets us free to walk in units of life with him and the freedoms in Christ just go on and on and on. For those of us who know him, we know true freedom. 
And so we gather this morning as, as a people who celebrate many freedoms, both as a nation here on earth and as this heavenly kingdom people who are called by Christ and granted this richness of his kingdom as a part of his family. But if we were to see someone giving up these freedoms for a particular cause, then we'd be like those detectives who were welcoming that convict back into the prison, wouldn't we? We'd want to know what what on earth is going on to cause you to, to give up your personal freedom. Why were the conditions so drastic that you wanted to give that freedom up? Well, well, as we round out our series on a new vision for a new vision, both today and next Sunday, we'll be carrying on this theme of the last stage of this vision. But as we round this out, we're going to see that there is a cause that is worthy of sacrificing the freedoms which this life affords us. For in this last objective of a new vision for a new vision, I want to show you that our ultimate ambition as members of this gathering of Christ's body is that we would be flowing God's riches into the lives of others. That we would, we would take these riches that have been poured into us and we would not hold them to ourselves, but we would do as Christ has called us to do and pour those riches into the lives of others. And to do this, it may indeed mean that we need to sacrifice the freedoms of the nation in which we live so that we can go to the nations to which Christ is calling us to go to so that we can share those riches with them. It may mean that we need to sacrifice the comforts that this freedom affords to us so that we can go to the uncomfortable places where the gospel is not proclaimed, where Jesus' name is not known. It may mean that we need to join our lives in a mission which seeks to pour God's riches into a world that so desperately needs them. And for those of you who are maybe new here today, maybe you don't have an idea of what we're talking about when we talk about a new vision for a new vision. So let me just kind of walk you through real quickly what we're talking about. We have a vision that is intended to guide each individual who encounters this place and each person who is involved in this body as to how we would like to see Christians progressing in Christian life and how we want to be involved in urging individuals, guiding them, helping them to walk along the path that Christ has called us to walk. And so ultimately our objective as we've, as we've defined it here is that we desire that through this fellowship Christ would cause multitudes to be what you see on these, four, these, these banners here behind me. Found, formed, fired, filled, and flowing. That is, we want individuals to be found and and invited to encounter God here. We want this to be a place of worship, a place where individuals can come to know the living God, can come to encounter Him in a time of praise, can come to know of His goodness and His glory. But we also want individuals not to just come through that experience without any sort of involvement or any sort of change. In fact, we want individuals to be formed into a new vessel by God's transforming power, just like clay in a potter's hand. And that's ultimately where this, this whole vision is, is wrapped around. We're in such an area of rich clay, that rich old Carolina Triassic shell that you dig down, you'll find that red clay pretty much anywhere you are. And there's such rich biblical imagery about how God made mankind out of the dust of the earth, how he formed us out of the ground and breathed into us the breath of life, how we are but earthen vessels that carry about this glory of Christ. 
And so we want individuals like that biblical imagery of clay to be formed in the potter's hands, made into this new vessel by his transforming power. But we want individuals also to come to a level of commitment. That is, we want as many as Christ would allow to be fired into a solid vessel ready for God's use. We want individuals to make commitments to say that there is a place where I want to be a part of a body that Christ has called me to be a part of so that I can get engaged in his work. And that's what we're talking about with the fired stage. And then we want individuals to be filled with truth and purpose for God's glory. That is, we want individuals through this place to be just piled up with the grace and the truth that God offers to us through the gospel. And then our ultimate ambition is where we're going to arrive at today. And that is that we want individuals to be flowing. That is, we don't just want to be in this comfortable state of being full of all that God has poured into us. We want to be flowing God's riches into the lives of everyone around us. And so that's what we're talking about with this vision. And we we talk about how we're making shifts from various stages as we go through this. So we begin out in this area in the community. Some of you are visiting here today and you don't have a church home. You're just a part of the community. That's fine. We want individuals from the community to be welcome here. But our desire is that we would see individuals from the community joining in with the crowd. That is those who are gathered here with us on a regular basis. And then we want those who have been found and and become a part of the crowd then to be transformed through this formation process into those who are changed. Those who have actually seen that Christ makes a difference. Those who yield their lives to him. Those who are ultimately in his hands, ready to be molded for his work. So we go from community to crowd, from crowd to changed. And then we want to go from changed to being committed. We want individuals to make a commitment to say, I want to serve Christ And I want to do that with a particular body. If that's not this body, we'd love for you to go and find a body of Christ where you can get involved in serving. But ultimately, what's within our control is to guide individuals to be committed to Christ through the place that we call New Vision here. And so we desire individuals to move from that committed stage after that into this commission stage. Because we believe that God, through the power of the Spirit, gives every believer a gift in which he intends us to use that gift for the purpose of building up the church, of edifying one another. So we want to be filled and commissioned in the sense that we are serving Christ in some very tangible sort of way. And then ultimately our goal is not just to have a big group of individuals who get together here and serve Christ in this place. Our ultimate goal is that those who are commissioned would be transformed into carriers as they take this wonderful gospel truth and all that God has equipped them with and they funnel that into the lives of others. And we've talked along the way about how our ultimate objective here is to multiply God's glory on the earth. When we talk about God's glory, we're talking about the weight of who he is, the brilliance of who God is and all that he has done, his creative power, his redeeming power through Christ. It is the very weight of who God is when we think of him. And our desire is to multiply that glory on the earth. We do that because we believe that's what Christ has called us to do through the Great Commission. And we do that at each stage of this vision. In our found stage, we multiply God's glory on the earth by multiplying magnifiers of his name. In our form stage, we multiply God's glory on the earth by multiplying models of his character. 
in our fired states. We multiply God's glory on the earth by multiplying members of God's family. And then in our field states, we multiply God's glory on the earth by multiplying ministers of God's grace. And then today, we come to our field stage, and now we are seeing that we are to multiply God's glory on the earth by multiplying missionaries of God's gospel. And so that's what we're going to be emphasizing here today. It's all tied around this vision, this imagery of how a potter takes this raw, rudimentary, yucky, nasty stuff and makes it into something that is of value, something that carries his treasure, something that accomplishes his purposes. And that's what God wants to do in and through each one of us. And so the ultimate goal of this vision is not that all of you would become disciples of Jesus Christ. We do want everyone to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. But ultimately, we desire to go beyond that so that every disciple of Jesus Christ that encounters Christ through this place would become a disciple maker. We desire that every individual who who encounters Jesus, who is built up in this way, would then pour these riches out into the lives of others by becoming disciple makers. Makers And really everything that we've looked up to, looked, looked at up to this point in today's series of messages has been, has been primarily focused on making disciples, on building you up as a disciple. As we talked about it, this place must be a place of worship where individuals encounter God. We've talked about this should be a place where they should be transformed by God's power, committed to God's family, commissioned for God's work, serving through this body. But our mission goes beyond these things. For Christ calls us to fulfill the great commission. In some of Jesus' final words on earth to his disciples, here's what he had to say. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and is it be disciples? No, make disciples. Is it in your local town, in your local church? No, not just there. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Yes, the fact that the church is called to make disciples does indeed mean that you are called to be a disciple and that we as a church are called to train you up to follow this discipline of Christ. Really, that's all a a disciple is, is someone who's following a particular discipline. And we're following the discipline of what Jesus has taught us to live when we talk about being disciples of Christ. But there's more to this call of what Jesus gave to his church with his final words than just building up large gatherings of those who are following Jesus. The command is not just to be disciples, but the command is for every Christian to make disciples. And where are we to do this work? Jesus says to make disciples of all the nations. The Bible, you know, knows nothing of a disciple who's not either making other disciples or at least preparing others to be disciple makers. As a matter of fact, from the moment that Jesus calls his first disciples, it was clear in his call of them what his purpose was for them. We find that over in Matthew chapter 4. There we read, Now as Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee... He saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, 
And I will make you fishers of men. And we find that immediately they left their nets and followed him. So Christ's command is given to his disciples as he calls them here. And it's a command that comes with a promise. The command is, follow me. That is the call to discipleship. But the promise that's given here in Matthew chapter uh, 4, verse 19 is, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. That is, this promise that those whom Jesus is calling to be his disciples should expect that he'll be preparing them to be disciple makers, to be fishers of men. And Jesus is calling to himself disciples whom he intends to be disciple makers. So what does all this have to do with our freedoms? Well, Paul gives us a glimpse here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, find your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we're going to see a disciple who has really given his freedom away for the cause of the very sort of thing that we're talking about here. And what we see when we look as we pick up in verse 19 here, we're going to see this, the stakes of eternity are so severe that we ought to yield all of our lives in order to win our fellow man to Christ. That's why we have this objective of flowing God's riches into the lives of God's people. That's why we have that essence of our vision here at the very end of the new vision that we're proclaiming and these various objectives that we've laid out for you. Because we want every individual whom we encounter to proceed in growth for the sake of the gospel. And the ultimate objective here for us, we must know, is not to create a safe environment where we can do Christianity and cruise into eternity on nice cushioned seats in air-conditioned buildings. It's, It's not to build you into a mature but a comfortable Christian. No, if there's one thing I want you to know, As the takeaway of this new vision for new vision, it's this. Until you are living your life on mission, you are still in transition. Let me say that again. Until you are living your life on mission, you are still in transition. That is, until you're flowing God's riches that he's placed into you, back into the world that he so loves and so longs to see restored to himself, that then God's vision for you is not yet complete. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church to address a question that they have regarding meat which has been sacrificed to idols. And, and Paul essentially tells the church, look, the, the practice of the day, by the way, was that you know, there would be these pagan religions, they would have meat, Uh, these animals which were brought for sacrifice. So they would bring these animals, they would sacrifice them to false gods, and then that meat would be taken and would be sold on the market at a cheaper price. Most of you are like me. There's a cheaper price for something, let's go for it, right? But Christians were saying, well, you know, is it okay to go and get the cheaper meat if it's really been sacrificed to an idol? I mean, you know, am I yielding my heart to an idol if I go and do that sort of thing? And Paul is telling the Christians, well, ultimately, you're free in Christ, right? You know that there's no such thing as an idol. You know that this is all a bunch of baloney. He said, but if you, in your doing this sort of thing, would cause your brother to stumble. So if the fact that you are going to eat this meat causes your brother to say, well, maybe these idols are real because this guy thinks they're real. He says, then don't eat the meat. 
He's saying, look, ultimately sacrifice your freedom in this instance instead of going and eating that meat. And then Paul gives himself as an example of how he ought to have so many freedoms in Christ. I mean, he's an apostle of Christ. He is one who has seen Christ in the flesh. He is one who's been commissioned by Christ to do his work in spreading the gospel among the Gentiles. And yet Paul does not take these freedoms for granted. In fact, he yields those freedoms up for the sake of Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 19. Here we find Paul saying to the Corinthian church, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without a law, as without a law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by, by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Here is the heart of the apostle as he lives his life on mission. One of the greatest missionaries who's ever lived, certainly, was the apostle Paul. As he carried the gospel from place to place and founded all these churches that we have, letters which God inspired him to write here, collected in our New Testament Bible. And as we look at Paul's life on mission, I thought it would be healthy for us just to examine here this morning four characteristics of a life on mission for Christ. And the first one is this, a life on mission gives personal freedom a back seat. A life on mission gives personal freedom a back seat. Paul makes it clear here in verse 19 that he is a free man. He says specifically, I am free from all men. And yet he's made a choice that he will not hold this freedom to himself. Instead, he's made a conscious decision that he's going to yield his freedom for a greater cause. In fact, he says in the latter half of verse 19 that he has intentionally chosen to make himself the opposite of free for the purpose of winning more individuals to Christ. He says, though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Now, we as a nation have this awful history of forced slavery based upon an individual's race and, a, and a, this erroneous notion that some individuals are less valuable because of the color of their skin. So to hear someone say, I've made myself a slave in our culture it would be a pretty shocking sort of thing to hear. But that would have been a shocking thing to hear in Paul's day as well. You see, Paul was writing to the Greeks and the Greeks, in Paul's day, really hated manual labor. In, in Greek thought, as a matter of fact, manual labor was reserved for the less worthy, lower class of society. They saw work as a, as a curse from the gods who made men to work. And so the ancient ph Greek philosopher Aristotle essentially said that living without having to work was a primary qualification for genuinely living a worthwhile sort of life. 
And the Greeks sought to become like the gods by withdrawing themselves from active life, by withdrawing themselves from labor and devoting all of their time to kind of contemplating the wisdom of things, these things which were free from physical labor. They knew that work was necessary, but they, they considered this mind-employing sort of work to be the more noble, the more uh, higher of, of the callings which individuals could be called to in humanity and less beastly than this body-employing sort of work. And so they would never, Greeks would never aspire to be slaves because that would, that would essentially be saying that I am not worthwhile, I'm not worthy of being one who is of higher thought. In fact, Aristotle said some people are born to be slaves because of their incapability of higher rational thought. And they should, be, they should do the work that frees the brilliant to pursue honorable lives. And yet here is Paul. He's writing to the Greeks. And what is he saying? He says that he's become a slave to all. He's giving up his societal position. He's giving up his dignity. He's giving up his rights. Why is he doing these things? so that he may win more individuals to Jesus. Paul says in verse 22, I become all things to all men so that I may be by all means save some. And a common refrain you hear in churches like this one is, it's all God. If, if there's anything good that I experience in my life, it's all God. I've got to give all the glory, all the praise, all the honor to God because it's all of him. If there's anything good you see in me, just know it's from him. And so many of us would say that in life we've been filled to the brim with the good things of God. But what are we doing with the good things that God has filled us up with? What are we doing with the riches that he has poured into us? Lifeway Research recently published a survey which found that 61% of those who are attending church at least twice a month have not shared Christ with a single non-Christian in the last six months. 61%, my friends. That's over half. Well, I'm not talking about those who say that they're Christians who are all around us but never go to church. 61% of those who go to church twice a month have not shared Jesus with anyone in the last six months. The research also shows that 48% of churchgoers say they have never invited someone to attend the church service or a program at their church. 48% never speaking to anyone to say, hey, would you like to come and hear this good news of the gospel? Would you like to come and encounter God in worship? Would you like to come and be involved in a small group where we see God transforming lives? 48% of churchgoers are never in their entire lives doing this sort of thing. How's that for becoming all things to all men in order that some might be saved? And we've got to wonder, what would church look like today if throughout history, individuals had taken this strategy that we are taking in our day and age? What would the church look like if individuals just were comfortable to go and sit on their cushion chairs and in the air conditioning and never speak of Christ outside of the place? Do you think we'd have a church here to begin with? Probably not. Or to put that in another spin, what is the church of our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren going to look like if we keep this sort of trend where we are never sharing the gospel of Christ with anyone around us? The church will vanish, my friends. 
Now, ultimately, I know that God is going to preserve his church. And Christ is building his church. But there is a call and a commission for each one of us to get involved, to get on board, to be a part of God's mission to save the world. And that's what we're talking about here today. How can we take these riches that God has poured into us and make those available? Make him known among the nations. How can we empty ourselves for the purposes of those who need Jesus? And we as American Christians have a way of taking the Jesus of the Bible and twisting him into a version of Jesus that we're more comfortable with. We think of Jesus as this nice middle class American guy. We think, oh, Jesus doesn't mind my materialism. He doesn't mind me accumulating all these things for myself. Jesus would never call me to give away everything that I have. Jesus is fine with my willingness to follow him so long as I'm comfortable to do so. Jesus wouldn't wouldn't want me to go to any sort of dangerous extremes. He wants me to be safe. He doesn't want me putting my life on the line. And we ultimately picture a Jesus who is experiencing and bringing the comfort and the prosperity, prosperity that we live out in the Christian spin on the American dream. But the Jesus of the Bible calls for us to confess him as Lord. We confess him as the master of our lives. We confess Jesus as the one who is in control of us, the Lord of our lives, in control of everything that we are. And this is what we are talking about when we're talking about this commission that God has for us. And that's a heartier call than most of us are prepared to answer. But it's a call for our master. And he is a good master who will care for us wherever he sends us. He is a good master who has prepared good things for us for all of eternity. He is a good master who is worthy of the little trinkets that we're connecting with here on earth, here and now. He is a good master who is worthy of it all. And so let us yield our lives by the power of his spirit within us. To let Jesus take the steering wheel. To put our freedoms, to put our comforts in the back seat so that he can have control over our lives. That will give us a life of mission. Secondly, a life of mission realizes that God's riches are a stewardship. God's riches are a stewardship. When we think through our vision and how we want each individual to be filled up with the gospel, to be given this truth and purpose for effective ministry, we have a hard time imagining How anyone could be filled up in a greater way than Paul. I mean, Paul was God's chosen instrument to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul had so many gifts. We see it in his writing. We see it in his argumentation. We see it in the way he pastored churches. We see it in the way that that he shared the gospel from place to place that he went. And he was obviously gifted by the Spirit in various ways. But Paul realized that his riches that were poured into him were not simply for his enjoyment, they were not simply for his leisure. He realized that the riches which had been poured into him were a stewardship from God. He'd been entrusted with something that had an intentionality for the one that had given it to him. And his obligation was to use the riches that he had to accomplish God's mission. Paul realized that there was a great need for these riches in the lives of others around him. Why? Because there were individuals in Paul's day who needed to be saved. And so Paul took the riches that had been placed within him and he set about on a life to glorify God by living out his mission and and bringing this good news of the gospel to bear upon others' lives. And I just just wonder, did you know that unchurched people think that we are weird? Those of us who gather in church, did y'all know that? 
They think we're weird. And, and you know, we kind, of a, we kind of think that they're going to think we're weird, but we get it backwards, actually, why, why we think they're going to think we're weird. Research, actually, from 2008 has confirmed that our neighbors think that we're weird, but they don't think we're weird for the reasons that you think. Because surveyors found that 57% of individuals who are not attending a church wonder why their Christian friends and neighbors never talk to them about spiritual matters. That is, to the majority of those who are outside the church, they see those of us who attend church as weird because we don't share our faith with them. Now, most of us have this sort of myth in our minds that our neighbors think we're weird because we might share the gospel with them. The reality is that they say, well, you commit your life to this Savior. You commit your life to this body. You commit your life to this hope of eternity, and it's not even worthwhile enough for you to bring into your conversations with me. And that's why they think we're weird. Kind of the opposite of what we tend to think they're going to think we're weird for. And we need to gear our lives towards sharing the riches of God with others. We need to realize that we are called to live life on mission for our master. And that God's riches poured into us through Christ are a stewardship that he intends for us to share in the lives of others. Thirdly, a life on mission recognizes the urgency of Christ's commands. Paul said that he'd made himself a slave to others and makes available all that is within him for the purpose of saving others. Well, there's something kind of built into that, right? If individuals are, are being saved because of what Paul is doing, then there's something that they need to be saved from, right? Well, what is it that they need to be saved from? And it's clear in Scripture. They need to be saved from the consequences of their sin against an infinitely holy God. They need to be saved from hell, this eternal conscious separation from God that is rightfully theirs because of the way that they have rejected his will, the way that they have gone against his design for mankind. And people in Paul's day needed a savior to rescue them from themselves, essentially. And my friends, people in our day need a savior to rescue them as well. People in our day need to know that Jesus Christ has come to be the rescuer. People in our day need to know that Jesus has provided the rescue plan which will rescue them from themselves, give them life eternal, give them a new purpose, a new hope, a new set of ambitions, a new life. And we live in a world where millions upon millions are in desperate need of this rescue that God has entrusted to us. Do you recognize the urgency of Christ's commands for us to go and make disciples of all the nations? Do you realize how urgent this need is, my friends? Let me share with you some statistics. Over 500 million people in the world are starving to death without food or water or basic medical care. Children are dying of diseases like diarrhea and, and suffering lifelong brain damage because of protein deficiencies. These are things which are easily curable, my friends. And yet people are dying in masses because of these things. Individuals are being sold into forced labor or trafficked for sexual exploitation. 150 million children are living as orphans in our world. And more than a billion have never even heard of Jesus. Are you content with these things, my friends? Can we really be happy 
with the life that we're living for Christ when these are statistics of the world around us? According from, to statistics from 2008, in a brief span of just 30 seconds, an average of about 53 people die worldwide. And 36 of them enter an eternity without Christ. That means there's more than one person a second going to hell. Are we content with these things? Do you sense the urgency of living life on mission for Christ? Do you understand what it means for those of us who are in the church, friends? That means that now, 2,000 years after God has commissioned his church to go and announce his rescue plan to the world, there are 72 people every minute who are dying without knowing the rescuer. Are we, my friends, going to be content with that? Or are we, going to, are we just going to shrug this off as though this is a matter of no great consequence to us? May God grant us the heart of that great British preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who said this. Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with their arms around their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. And we must yield our lives to God's mission, for there is a life on mission which he calls us to, which recognizes the urgency of Christ's commands. But fourthly, a life on mission appreciates the impact of a life on mission. A life on mission Im- appreciates the impact of a life on mission. Paul told those Corinthians, I have become all things to all men in order that I may by all means save some. That's a lot of alls, isn't it? It goes on from there. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. That's a lot of alls, isn't it? And a a vessel which has been filled with God's truth and purpose. In Paul, Paul was not willing to hold these sorts of things back. He wasn't relinquishing some piece of this to himself and then giving the rest to God. It was an all-out, all-things-for-all-men sort of ministry for him. He was all in for the sake of the gospel. He was living a life on mission, just as we are called to do. But what was the fuel for that mission? Paul was seeking to win individuals for Jesus. Why why would Paul want to win individuals to Jesus? Because, Because Paul knew what Jesus had done for him. Paul had seen a life on on mission. Paul knew that Jesus had saved him. Paul wanted to see others saved. He wanted to partake of this gospel with his fellow men because the gospel had been such a rich blessing to him. And he wasn't holding any of it to himself. He wanted it all to go out for the glory of God. And Paul was living a life on mission because he had encountered a life on mission. Paul had encountered Jesus. And he was never the same after that encounter. Because Jesus, my friends, had come on a mission of his own. Jesus had come to save Paul, and Jesus has come to save you. Jesus has come to save the world. He has come to be the Savior of all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but should have eternal life. Jesus has come to be the Savior of all, my friends. That's why why Paul could write here to his his letter in, in Philippians chapter 2 to the church in Philippi, he said, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
how, how does Paul have a ministry mission-minded sort of attitude? Because he says, have this attitude which is in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, or you could say taking the form of a slave, Jesus did. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You, you see, Paul lived a life on mission because he had encountered the greatest missionary who had ever lived in the Lord Jesus. Paul gave his life to be a slave of his fellow man because he knew a Savior from heaven who, though he existed in the form of God, took the form of a slave upon himself and humbled himself to the point that he gave all. I mean, he poured out everything that he had, including his own blood, to win you, my friends. The greatest missionary of all time has come for you. The greatest missionary of all time has come to tell you that there is a way to be rescued. There is a Savior. There is a God who loves you. And there is one who is willing to throw you the rope, which will pull you to the safety of eternal life. And Jesus has the first fruits. Jesus is the one who's risen from the dead offers all those who will place their faith in him this same rescue. Jesus offers to us his life because he bore the penalty that we deserved. The righteous one for the unrighteous one. The sinless one for the sinner. Jesus came on mission to rescue you. And that's why Paul could empty himself because he knew he'd, em he'd served the Savior who had emptied himself for Paul. And that's why I must stand here today and urge all of you, don't waste your time here on this earth. We have a Savior who has emptied himself for you. He has endured the horrific death of the cross to buy you back from the grave. He's given all to win you to himself. Oh, wandering sinner, don't miss his grace. Don't let his call to you go unnoticed. And also I say to you, oh, comfortable Christian, don't let his call to you go unnoticed. It's a give everything to win whosoever sort of ministry. It's a go after everyone with every sort of thing that you've got sort of ministry that he calls us to. And it's the sort of thing that Jesus himself did. John chapter 20 is some of his final words with his disciples. We see that when it was evening of that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut and when the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them. He showed them the signs of his missionary heart. He showed them both his hands and his side, the places where the nails had been and where the spear had been jabbed. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Listen to these words. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. You see, Jesus doesn't call us to anything that he himself was not willing to do. For Jesus gave it all. Jesus became a slave of all. Jesus bore the nails in his hands and the spear in his side and the death and the humiliation and the mockery on the cross so that you could be rescued. And as the Father has sent him, he now sends us to do his work. And so on this weekend of freedom in America... I want to call all of us 
to slavery. That is, I want, I want you to see that God's word calls for all of us to yield all that we have for the cause of following Jesus and bringing the good news of the gospel to bear on a world that is in desperate need of him. And on a day when so many churches are singing, God bless America here in our land, I want to call you to recognize that God has a heart, not just for America. God has a heart for all of the nations. And he calls for us to be a part of his plan to win them back. Once again, I remind you, until you are living on mission, you are still in transition. It's a give-everything sort of ministry. We've been filled with so much, and yet so often we want to hold some of it back, right? I mean, even if we were to go 99%, can, can you imagine the implications of that, right? Can, can you imagine it, the, the implication if, if God had sent his own son into the world so that 99% might be saved? What would be our mentality? We'd say, well, am I potentially not in the breadth of those who could receive Christ and have eternal life? And I think so often we, we want to kind of sing those traditional hymns as though we really are giving all, but if we were, if we were singing in some sort of reality, we might sing something like, some to Jesus I surrender, some to him I sometimes give. I will sometimes love and trust him in his presence, sometimes live. I surrender some, I surrender some, some to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender some. That's not what we really sing together, is it? But is it the way we live? Is that the heart that we have in the church today? If so, what can we do to yield our lives to God so that he can cause us to be flowing for his grace? Would you pray with me? Father, we must confess in this hour that we grow up in a culture where we are convinced that having a cushioned pew to ride to heaven on is all we need. And we must confess, O oh Lord, that we have twisted the image of who Jesus truly is and what he ultimately calls us to do into an image that is too comfortable for ourselves. And so, Father, in this hour, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would convict our hearts and show us how to do better than we know how to do. Oh, Lord, if we're going to break out of this mold, it's going to be by your power, oh, Lord. And I believe that you have given us this vision. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to break free from the mold.